Let me invite you to turn with me now to the New Testament Gospel of Luke and to the 8th chapter. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and specifically we'll be reading from chapter 8. Luke 8, 1 through 15. Soon afterwards, he began going around from one city and village to another, proclaiming and preaching the kingdom of God. The twelve were with him, and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and sicknesses. Mary, who was called Magdalene, from whom several demons had gone out, and Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's steward, and Susanna, and many others who were contributing to their support out of their private means. When a large crowd was coming together and those from the various cities were journeying to him, he spoke by way of a parable. The sower went out to sow his seed, and as he sowed, some fell beside the road, and it was trampled underfoot, and the birds of the air ate it up. Other seed fell on rocky soil, and as soon as it grew up, it withered away because it had no moisture. Other seed fell among the thorns, and the thorns grew up with it and choked it out. Other seed fell into the good soil and grew up and produced a crop a hundred times as great. As he said these things, he would call out, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. His disciples began questioning him as to what this parable meant. And he said, To you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God, but to the rest it is in parables, so that seeing they may not see, and hearing they may not understand. Now the parable is this, the seed is the word of God. Those beside the road are those who have heard. Then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts, so that they will not believe and be saved. Those On the rocky soil are those who, when they hear, receive the word with joy, and these have no firm root. They believe for a while, and in time of temptation fall away. The seed which fell among the thorns, these are the ones who have heard, and as they go on their way, they are choked with worries and riches and pleasures of this life, and bring no fruit to maturity. But the seed in the good soil... These are the ones who have heard the word in an honest and good heart and hold it fast and bear fruit with perseverance. There are, of course, four types of soil in this parable, four kinds of human heart upon which God's word is sown. And each of these four metaphors passing over the lips of our Lord Jesus is important and instructive, and some of them may you already recognize or apply apply directly to you this morning. But I would like particularly today to focus especially on one of the four, particularly on those words of Jesus there in verse 7. Other seed fell among the thorns, and the thorns grew up with it and choked it out. Other seed fell among the thorns. We can probably all envision the kind of picture that Jesus is painting here, can't we? Here's a patch of ground covered with nettles and briars and sticker bushes and weeds and wild shoots of every sort. 
Maybe you can picture the undergrowth and the brush that you might find along a creek bank in the woods. Or, if you like, you can call to mind the kind of wild hedgerows that tend to grow up along property lines here in our city, like the one that lines the edge of our parking lot across the way over there. None of that stuff is cultivated, of course. It's just a tangle of bushes and wild vines and scrub of various kinds, all twisted together so closely that it's hard to tell what plant comes from where. And you'd probably not think of setting out tomato plants in such a spot, right? Nor would you plant your strawberries or your bell peppers in a briar patch because all of the brush, all of the tangle would choke them out. That's the picture here. I think also of an old house in the neighborhood here that was unkempt and weathered by the years and the front yard was just overrun with all sorts of brushwood and thicket that are usually confined only to the hedgerows to the point where you almost couldn't see the house itself. And it seems unlikely to me that the people who live there probably ever had homegrown green beans with their Thanksgiving dinner, right? Where would they have had room to grow? And that's the point that Jesus is making there in verse 7. Even if good seed is sown on a briar patch, and even if it takes root and begins to make a little headway, the thorns will grow up with it, won't they? The nettles will spring up beside it and come up beneath it and all around it, and the tomatoes or the beans or the berries will be choked out and bear very little fruit. Other seed fell among the thorns, and the thorns grew up with it and choked it out. Sometimes it happens beneath the surface, right, as the weeds rob the good plants of much of the soil's moisture and nutrients. Other times the choking happens above the ground as the wild plants block the sunlight that the good ones desperately need, or perhaps as the vines twist around the good stalks and stunt their growth. We can all understand, I think, how these things happen and what this looks like. And even if you're like me and you've never really grown a real garden, you've perhaps fought off dandelions whose pervasive growth and broad leaves choke out the grass that's growing on your lawn, right? That's the sort of picture that Jesus is painting here in verse 7. Other seed fell among the thorns, and the thorns grew up with it and choked it out. So just imagine yourself this morning trying to plant a little garden at home. More and more people are doing that these days as food becomes more expensive and people are sort of returning to the earth. And so you decide that you're going to go a little bit organic as well. You're going to save a little money on groceries, and you head to the local farm supply, and you buy yourself several kinds of seed, and you ask yourself, where is this seed going to grow best? Where am I going to plant this seed to get the greatest harvest? Now, I'm no horticulturalist by any stretch. My fingers spend a lot more time on a keyboard than they'll ever spend in the soil. But I think it's safe for me to advise you not to plant the seed beneath the hedgerow or in the briar patch along your back fence, right? You plant it in the good soil. You plant it in the open ground where it won't have to compete with the thorns. That's just good old-fashioned common sense, right? Sliced up neatly and served to us by the Lord Jesus himself here in Luke 8. But of course, Jesus is not primarily interested in teaching horticulture, is he? No, he speaks of soils so that we might learn something about our souls. 
He takes us out to the garden patch and shows us the sower and the seed and the thorns and the fruit, all as illustrations of spiritual realities that are far more important than anything we will grow in our gardens. The soil, as we learn in verses 12 through 15, is a metaphor for the human heart and its receptivity, or lack thereof, to the things of God. And the seed, verse 11, is the word of God. The seed is the word of God. And incidentally, that is perhaps why the sower here in Luke 8 sows the seed so indiscriminately. Why he sows the seed on patches of ground that we wouldn't think of planting cabbages or corn. Hard ground, rocky ground, thorny ground. He sows it everywhere because the seed is the word of God. And because that seed has the power to spring up to eternal life. This seed sown on the human heart has the power to spring up to eternal life, doesn't it? And where it's not sown, eternal life is impossible. And therefore, we dare not be too choosy about where we sow it. Those who sow the seed of God's word, whether preachers or Sunday school teachers or parents or Christians sharing Christ at work and at school, those who sow the word of God must, like this sower in Luke 8, sow it here and there and everywhere. Not only in places where it seems most likely to grow, but even on apparently unworkable soil in hopes that it might find some little crevice in the ground and some little opening between the thorns and grow and prosper into eternal life. So in telling us that some patches of soil are more fruitful than others, that some human hearts are more receptive than others, Jesus is not here giving instructions to sowers as to where they ought to sow their seed. No, the sower in Jesus' parable scatters the seed anywhere and everywhere he can, on soft ground and hard, on the furrows and in the weeds. And we must do the same, believing that all people everywhere should hear the word of God. So he's not warning the sowers here. He's not teaching us how to sow the seed so much. He's not saying to us, don't waste good seed on bad soil. But if Jesus is not warning the sowers not to waste good seed on bad soil, what is Jesus doing in this parable? Well, I think he's warning the soil not to waste good seed on bad soil. He's warning here not those who sow the word of God, but those who receive it. He's warning not the sowers, but the soil. Because the soil, while it's inanimate in the world of horticulture, is not inanimate in terms of spiritual sowing and reaping, is it? The soil in this parable is the human heart, and the human heart is very animate. The human heart can realize that it's become hard or rocky or infested with weeds, and the human heart can then do something about that. The ground can be tilled up, the rocks can be plucked up, the thorns can be dug out so that the good seed may take root. And that, I think, is what Jesus is getting at here in Luke 18. He's warning the soil. He's warning you and he's warning me not to allow good seed to be wasted on bad soil, unreceptive hearts. He is in this parable painting for us a picture of how we, each one of us, ought to cultivate the ground that is our own heart. 
And he's warning us in verse 7 specifically to uproot the thorns and the nettles and the scrub and the undergrowth that might be choking out the seed that is the word of God. He's warning us to uproot the thorns and the thistles and the undergrowth that might be choking out the seed that is the word of God. And it is precisely because he's warning us in that way that I chose to bring this passage to you this morning because I believe that many of us perhaps have some gardening to do. Many of us have allowed some thorns to spring up in our lives that are choking out God's word, either preventing us from hearing it as often as we should or reading it as regularly as we should, or thorns that are keeping us from applying what we do here, and thus keeping us, verse 14, from bringing fruit to maturity, keeping us from being what we ought to be for Jesus, what some of us perhaps once were for Jesus. That's what weeds do to a garden, isn't it? They choke out the good stuff and keep the garden from being what it ought to be. They keep it from being perhaps what it once was. They keep fruit from ripening into maturity. And I see signs of that in our midst. Fruit that's not ripening as it might. Potential that's not being captured for Jesus as it should be. And I want us to think soberly about that this morning from this parable. Some of you may already feel the weight of these things in your own heart. Some of you may know that you're not producing the fruit that you once did or that you ought to. Others of you may be convicted as we go along today that your garden is in need of some significant work. That happened to me as I was preparing for this message. I thought, I need to do some gardening as well. The work gloves and the spade and the clippers must come out for some of us. There are thorns For some of us that need uprooting, you may not be what you once were. You may not be what you ought to be for the Lord. And and the urging of this text is to stop allowing the good seed to fall among the thorns. But what are those thorns? What are the briars and the thistles that Jesus says tend to choke out God's word so that we don't grow as we should? We don't produce fruit as we should. We don't make spiritual progress as we should. Sometimes the ground can become so infested with these things that we're incapable of producing any fruit at all and so prove ourselves never to have been Christ's disciples. And if that's the case, if fruit bearing is that important then it behooves us to find out what these thorns and thistles are that can choke out the word of life so that we can attack them. And in verse 14, Jesus unlocks the parable for us, doesn't he? He identifies the thorns that so aggressively choke out God's word. And I want us to hear what he says, and I want us to think out the application to our own lives. Verse 14, the seed which fell among the thorns, these are the ones who have heard, and as they go on their way, they are choked with worries and riches and pleasures of this life and bring no fruit to maturity. The ones who have heard, and as they go on their way, they are choked with worries and riches and pleasures of this life and bring no fruit to maturity. So what are the thorns which choke out the seed, which is God's word? Worries, 
and riches and pleasures of this life. These are the distractions in our lives that tend to choke out God's word and make us unfruitful in his kingdom. Worries, riches, pleasures. And what I'd like to do for just the next little while is to open up for you a kind of field guide to these various wild shoots and describe to you, as it were, what their bark looks like and the shape of their leaves and the color of their poisonous flowers so that you can recognize these various thorn bushes and scan your own yard for them and uproot them before they do any more damage. And we'll begin with worries. They are choked with worries, Jesus says of some people who hear his word. Now, there are, of course, legitimate concerns that we all have for the things of this life, right? Health, work, finances, chores, school, insurance, transportation, and so on. All of these things require our legitimate attention and concern, right? That's not what Jesus is talking about here. He's talking about when we become so wrapped up in them, so fretful about them, so intent on making sure that our temporal lives are running as smoothly as possible that we woefully neglect eternal things, that we woefully neglect our souls. Sometimes, like Jesus' friend Martha, just a few chapters over, we can be so busy rushing around, taking care of all the things on our to-do list that we will not take time to sit down and read or listen to God's word. That may be true of you. You remember Martha's busyness over in Luke chapter 10? She and her sister Mary were having Jesus over for a visit, and Martha was so distracted, so worried and bothered, as Jesus put it, so intent on making the tea and setting the table and cleaning the dishes that she didn't have time to actually sit down with her sister and listen to Jesus. She was just too busy for God. Martha was so busy trying to serve Jesus that she wouldn't stop and listen to his word. And that may speak to some of our cases directly. But others of us may not even be busy serving Jesus. We just may be too busy, period. The worries of life, the busyness and the cares and all the various shoots that we've allowed to grow up in our gardens have crept over us like an invasive vine, and are threatening to pull us down like a tired old tree. Do you feel like that sometimes? Has it been a long time since you really sat at Jesus' feet like Martha's sister, listening intently to him? Or is it possible that even when you do sit and listen or read, that the word just seems so dry to you? Or you're so worn out or frankly distracted by other things that you can't bring yourself to be enthused about what the Lord says. Or to labor hard at putting it into practice. Or do you, on the other hand, leave this room week by week and close up your Bible morning by morning, having received the word implanted in such an uncluttered heart that you go out that day or you go out that week and really do something about what you've heard and read. Which is it for you? Is what you're reading and hearing in the Bible really making a difference in your life? Are you digesting it? Is it germinating in your soul? Is it producing the fruit of real life change and deliberate action 
to live for the Lord? Or do you close your Bible most days, if you open it at all, and just rush off hurriedly to tend frantically to all the worries of this life? Are you too busy for God? Too busy to read your Bible? Too busy to digest what you read? Too busy to pray or be with God's people or apply what God says when you are? Maybe it's time to pull out the spade and do some uprooting. Do you really have to be on all those several committees? Is all the overtime really necessary? Must you or your children be involved in every extracurricular? Is all that time glued to the smartphone really indispensable? Is your GPA or your lawn or your promotion really more important to you than time spent at the feet of Jesus? Beware of how the worries of this life can, like dandelions in your lawn, cause the good seed of the word of God to be crowded out and to produce very little fruit. Beware of being among those who, as they go on their way, they are choked with worries. And beware also, Jesus warns, of being choked by the riches of this life. Riches. Beware of how the sound of jingling change can drown out the voice of God. Or how an inordinate desire for money can, like a wild thorn bush, crowd out the word of Christ. As they go on their way, they are choked with worries and riches, Jesus says. Now, Jesus, again, here isn't talking about the legitimate need that each of us has to earn money and to pay bills and to put food on the table and to clothe our children and so on. Those things are necessities, obviously, and we shouldn't feel guilty to pray about money in that way, to work hard for money in that way, even sometimes to work extra in order to make ends meet. That's not what Jesus is talking about. He's warning here not about making ends meet, not about putting food on the table for your family. He's warning here about riches. And the warning is probably similar to what Paul meant when he spoke in 1 Timothy 6.10 about the love of money. The love of money is a root of all sorts of evil, and some, by longing for it, have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. That's a strong statement, isn't it? That the love of money has caused some to wander away from the faith even. And we can see how it happens because the love of money crowds out the word of God. The love of money has made many a person ignore the commandments of God. It's made many a person hard of heart, for instance, to what the Bible says about generosity toward the poor or toward the work of the gospel. The love of money makes other people willfully deaf to the Bible's commands concerning covetousness. The love of money causes others to ignore the Bible's prohibitions about theft and dishonesty and taking advantage of the poor. In short, the love of money is like a spreading underbrush that covers over much of the word of God so that we conveniently forget what the Lord has said. Beware of the love of money. And beware of how, perhaps most dangerously of all, riches can lull us into a false sense of security. 
when we are well-to-do in this life, and most of us measured against the rest of the world are, when our needs are met and many of our wants are met as well, it's very easy to forget that this world is not all that there is. When our needs are met and many of our wants are as well, it's easy to forget that the security that we now feel will one day be pulled out from beneath us like a rug. And we will meet our maker in whose courtroom money and possessions will be of no value at all. Those who are well-to-do in this life have a hard time, a very hard time, seeing how precarious their lives really are. Because everything's going so well. It's hard to see hell opening up beneath you when you're sitting comfortably on a plush leather couch, isn't it? It's hard to realize the glories of heaven when you think you have everything you need here and now. And so as Mark records this same parable of the sower and these same words of Jesus, he tells us that Jesus spoke specifically of the deceitfulness of riches. The deceitfulness of riches. Beware how the deceitfulness of riches, the deceitfulness of having what you need and a lot of what you want, beware of how that can keep you from realizing how desperately you need the message and the gospel and the God of this book. And if the shoes fit, if the love of money has deceived you, if desires for riches has crowded out the word of God, If the shoes fit this morning, then you must wear them and walk out into the garden and take an axe to the poison ivy that is the love of money in your life. And then finally, Jesus says we must be wary of how the pleasures of this life can choke out God's word. Pleasures. And once again, I note for you that this can happen in more than one way. First, pleasures, simple pleasures, sometimes great pleasures, pleasures that aren't in themselves wrong. Pleasures, like busyness, can keep us from hearing God's word in the first place. How easy is it to choose the pleasure of sleep or the pleasure of football or the pleasure of television or the pleasure of the internet or the pleasure of just vegging out at home, which is pleasurable sometimes, isn't it? But how easy to let those various things take precedence over the word of God. So often, frankly, we would rather be entertained than engaged to think carefully about what the Lord says to us. It's a problem in our culture, and it's a problem for some of us here as well. The pleasures of this life often keep us from hearing or reading the word of God. find ourselves doing all sorts of things instead of opening our Bibles or hearing it preached. Or we stay up so late doing pleasurable things on Saturdays that we're shot on Sunday morning and get very little out of what we do here. Beware of these things. Beware of how readily your soul, if not checked, will default to fun instead of faith. And then beware of how pleasure can not only keep us from hearing the word of God in the first place, but also from applying what we do here. Pleasure competes with obedience, doesn't it? Pleasure talks to us something like this. You know, if I'm going to give generously to missions, I might have to sacrifice the pleasure of cable TV. 
If I'm going to give myself to a pattern of biblical hospitality, I might have to forego the pleasure of an always neat house. If I'm going to come and pray with God's people at the prayer meeting, I'm going to have to give up the pleasure of sleeping in. If I'm going to share the gospel at work, I may forfeit the pleasure of everyone thinking I'm swell. Now, there's nothing inherently wrong with most of these various pleasures that I've just listed, but you can see how they compete with obedience to God. You can see how Satan can use pleasure as a bargaining chip in his attempt to purchase our souls, and he's good at it. You can see how easily the pleasures of this life can serve as big, giant questions of God in our lives. Do I want to serve God? Or wouldn't I rather just serve myself this one time? Only this one time is almost never just this one time, is it? A love of pleasure has a way of becoming an addiction such that we think we have to have what every other American has. And we're willing to debate with ourselves sometimes as to whether those things are worth giving up in order to serve Christ. Beware of this. Beware of the deceitfulness of pleasure. Worries and riches and pleasures of this life. These are the specific varieties of scrub brush that Jesus warns us can choke out the word of God. Learn to identify them like poison ivy in your hedgerow before they grow so large and unwieldy that it will take a major project for you to root them out. But also be willing, if and when they do grow out of control, to undertake that major project. And that's where some of us may be this morning. I told you about the house here in Pleasant Ridge whose front yard looked like one giant thicket so overgrown that you could barely see the house. Well, not long ago, I was walking down that street, and as I passed the house, I stopped, and I thought, wait just a second here. Isn't this the house with the jungle in the front yard? What on earth has happened here? I could actually see the house, and someone had bought the house and given it a total rehab so that it's hard to believe that it's the same place. I even went inside and looked around, and the inside looked just as well as the outside. But what was just as astonishing is that I could actually see what they'd done because all the brush and the weeds and the nettles in the front yard had been completely dug up and carried away, and in their place was a beautiful carpet of freshly growing green grass, such as probably hadn't grown there in decades. The grass could finally take root and grow because all of the tangle above had been completely cut away. And what a picture that is of how faith can flourish when we're willing to cut away the undergrowth. But I tell you, I cannot imagine how much work must have gone into clearing away that jungle. Someone or a group of someone's probably poured a lot of sweat into that front lawn. But to look at that house now and to look at the yard today means it was surely worth it. And I just wonder if such a makeover is worth it to you. Are you willing to get out your spade and your axe and your shears and pour out spiritual sweat in order to hack away at the briars in your life that you know are keeping you from being beautiful and fruitful for Jesus? 
It'll be hard. It won't happen overnight. It'll take sacrifices. But are you willing to make a start at that? Are you willing to cut down the crawling vines of busyness that just suck the life out of your zeal for God so that you might make room in your overstimulated mind and in your too full schedule for God? Are you willing to uproot the love of money and give place to the love of Christ and his people and his word and the cause of his gospel at the ends of the earth? Are you willing to chop down the prickle bushes of pleasure that are constantly ensnaring you so that you choose self rather than God and others? There's hard work ahead for some of us if we want to bring fruit to maturity, but it will be worth it. Because how much more spiritually healthy and happy and holy might you be if you were in God's word every single day? And how much more fruit might you produce for God if you walked out of this building Sunday afternoons, not just with good intentions, but with very few weeds in the garden to keep you from putting into practice what you've heard? And how might the face of our congregation and the fruitfulness of it change if we were all in this building more consistently, hearing the word of God together and singing its truths and praying about what we've heard There's great potential in this little plot of ground. The Lord has given us as a church great opportunity. There's great potential in these pews if we will clear the ground, if we will pull the weeds, if we will love Christ and his word more than our pleasures, if we will put Christ and his word first in our schedules. There can be much fruit. So let each of us cultivate our little furrow. Let us undertake the rehab project if need be. Let us clear the ground and remove all the obstacles to this good seed. And to the extent that we failed to tend the garden faithfully, and none of us does it perfectly, to the extent that we have neglected God's word or made decisions that rendered our hearts cluttered and inhospitable soil, Let us also pray this morning as we heard the psalmist pray a few moments ago. Out of the depths I have cried to you, O Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my supplications. If you, Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But there is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. There is forgiveness for those who have neglected their gardens this morning and allowed thorns to have control of the soil. Why? Because in another garden, in the city of Jerusalem 2,000 years ago, a seed whose name was the Word was buried in the earth for our sins. Like a seed from the great sower's hand, Jesus fell into the earth and died so that from him the seed, the fruit of forgiveness and joy and hope and eternal life and real life change might spring up for all who believe. Because Jesus died and was buried like a seed, there is forgiveness for all who will repent and believe. And because Jesus rose the first fruits from the dead, we too can walk in newness of life. We too can bring fruit to maturity. Let us be sure, then, that we do it.
The seed which fell among the thorns, these are the ones who have heard, and as they go on their way, they are choked with worries and riches and pleasures of this life and bring no fruit to maturity. But the seed in the good soil, these are the ones who have heard the word in an honest and good heart and hold it fast and bear fruit with perseverance. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. 